disaster's almost sure we have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show Carl Wood and Company Side chatters, we know the world is a Game of Thrones style tug of war for power, influence, and control among ever emerging think tanks, consortiums, and cabals whose only true common ground is the acknowledgement that the people are a resource to be slowly drained and exploited if you can only get them to believe you're on their side. To me, that's history in a nutshell, and our modern era is no different, just a slow erosion of any ground that's been gained, with the oily appendages of these nefarious factions relentlessly creeping in from all sides. Yes, it seems the only true choice of the people is how we want our centralized, top-down, authoritarian system packaged and gift-wrapped, because for all the talk about social structures, political philosophies, and personal utopias, those seem to be the irremovable yokes and shackles around our necks. Well, folks, a deep dive into these very issues is the offering on the higher side table today, as our resident alchemy and alternative science expert, Shaman Janir, has requested we take a break from our Elemental series to explore fascism more closely. So let's get into it. He taught us about Ether and Ormus in show one, broke down earth alchemy and advanced permaculture practices in show two, and of course explained the forefront of water science and the suppressed and unknown qualities of H2O in show three. Here again to blow more minds than the U.S. military, Shaman Janir, my man. Welcome back. Excellent as always. You got the best introductions on the web, so. Ah, just the old nine to five. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll dive right into it. Basically, what we're discussing today is fascism. Sure. You know, and for most people, you know, fascism has this, you know, kind of dual nature. One people will describe it one way. One people will describe it another way, depending on your view. But right now i'm going to go ahead and get into the historical perspective and then we can build it up from there how's that sound that sounds great first of all in the 18th century when the united states was founded there were basically two modes of thought with with regard to government so there was the jeffersonian and the hamiltonian or the federalist and the republican stances now the Federalist was the Hamiltonian version where big government and federal authority was paramount and it overrode the state's rights and small government was basically involved in the Jeffersonian stance as well as state authority being Jeffersonian. Now, each of these philosophies is, of course, taking place within the democratic context so that positions of authority are granted by the will of the people at the ballot box, but also within this context there's a hierarchical bureaucracy. These arguments are still alive today, but basically the federalist standpoint of federal authority and big government has continued to gain more footing with time. One thing that which is not really discussed at all today is the role that corporations played after the revolution in this country, and it was extremely limited. 
it was understood that these artificial constructs had the potential to undermine the fledgling democracy and should be limited to prevent an abuse of power. The colonials had fought too hard against the Hudson Bay and East India Tea Company, whose tea was tossed overboard during the Boston Tea Party, to allow large businesses to spring up after the foundation of the United States. To accomplish this, corporations were creations of the state at the state level, bounded to accomplish a specific task for a set period of time, and they could not participate in politics. Neither could they own stock in other corporations, and they were ultimately responsible to the people. If it was found that a corporation was violating its charter by acting against the public good, it would be disbanded and people who were found responsible for the violation were liable for damages incurred. So initially this worked well. And in the 1800s, there were about 200 corporations that were doing what they were chartered to do. And with a few exceptions, especially the first and second banks of America, they remained within the bounds of their charter. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because... We talk a lot about the founders trying to get away from various forms of oppression, but they were dealing with companies like the Hudson Bay Company or the East India Tea Company in particular. So they were very wise to how out of control corporations can get. And so here you see all these regulations on them to try to keep them, you know, bound to the people. And of course, as time goes on, they erode that. But it is interesting to go back and think about corporations in that context because it's really underreported on. Uh, definitely. And I mean, in the 1850s, there were very strong antitrust regulations. So, I mean, basically at that point, before the 30s even, you had a very contained corporate influence within this country. Now, what changed was basically during the Civil War, corporations made huge profits from procurement contracts. They took advantage of the disorder to corrupt and by the legislators, even presidents, and corporations became the masters and keepers of business. What Abraham Lincoln said was, corporations have been enthroned, an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power will endeavor to prolong its reign by working on the prejudices of the people until wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. So, in the wake of the Civil War restrictions, the power wielded by corporations was greatly eroded. They had laws governing their creation amended. State charters could no longer be revoked. Corporate profits could no longer be limited. And corporate economic activity could be restrained only by the courts. In hundreds of cases, granted corporations minor legal victories, conceding rights and privileges they had not seen before. Mm. See, and that makes total sense too, just because how many times in history have we seen these cabals use times of war and chaos to further their own agendas behind the curtain while everybody's focused on the battlefield. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, basically, that that's move number one. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You know, I mean, if you want to do something, start a war first or cause an attack or something along those lines. Right. But I wonder how many people ever really think about corporate power changing to such a degree because of the distraction of the Civil War. Of course, it's not only a distraction, but for the things to have happened that happened behind the curtain, these changes in the structure of corporations, I mean, it changed the world. Definitely. Definitely. That is what gave rise to the robber barons. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, there's most people think that Citizens United was what made private corporations a natural citizen under the U.S. Constitution, but it actually goes much further back than that. 
in the Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, there was a dispute over a railbed route, and the U.S. Supreme Court deemed that a private corporation was a natural person under the U.S. Constitution and therefore entitled to protection under the Bill of Rights. And at that point, corporations enjoyed the same rights and sovereignty that was enjoyed by the average citizen, and more so because of their power and influence. Mm. And that was in 1886. <laughs> so by about 1920, the corporations actually employed more than 80% of the workforce in the United States. So in that 40, 50 years, they came to dominate everything. And that was actually the point where small business was not really a factor in terms of driving votes or anything like that. The politicians didn't care about small business at that point. It was only big business, big trusts, and big corporations. Right. It seems to kind of parallel the struggle early America had with banking as well. You know, we've gone through several iterations of federal reserves or central banks before we got the one that really stuck. But it did seem like a back and forth between people who have seen these problems before trying to make a new type of civilization society that kept them more in check. And then these same old forces just trying to weasel their way in relentlessly. They're just so persistent that it's just hard to keep them in check, for sure. Yeah. And the next place where there was, you know, a really big movement with regard to this is actually, you know, during the Wall Street crash and things like that. So, you know, at that point, there were, you know, millions of people out of work. And there were bread lines and, and people were jumping on rail cars to try and find work wherever they could. At that point, basically, is when FDR said, you know, we need a new deal. And when he said that, Wall Street was panicking because they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we can't have all this progressive stuff, all this, you know, more socialized workforce coming through because it'll, it'll basically erode what we've been building up since the Civil War. And so at the time, fascism was growing in Europe, and they decided to see what they could do in terms of fomenting a fascist coup in the United States. And so in order to start a coup in the United States, somebody was sent to Germany to see what was going on over there, and that was Gerald McGuire. And when he finished his scouting trip, he was basically used to approach a champion of the soldier, and that was Major General Smedley Butler. So basically what they wanted to do was take this large group of veterans who'd been protesting and use them to act as kind of a, a brown shirt organization to take over D.C. And the reason why there was all this anger from these veterans was because at the end of World War One, they were given $60 and a train ticket home as the extent of their mustering out pay. <sighs> now, veterans associations were formed to try and get a better deal, and they ended up getting an agreement where they would each be provided about $1,000 in the form of a bonus certificate that would grow with value over the years and it would be able to be cashed out in 20 years. So when the Great Depression struck, a lot of these veterans ended up losing their jobs. They didn't have anything at that point, And they started basically a tent city in Washington, D.C. to try and get their uh, pensions paid out. 
And Smedley Butler was actually somebody who was there speaking out for the veterans at the time. So he won a lot of favor with them from that. But also during World War One, he was in charge of a camp in Europe. And all the people who went through there saw him as someone who was really pro-soldier, who was, you know, always trying to stand up for them and give them what they needed to be happy and, and, and do their job. So when he was approached by Gerald McGuire, basically what he said was, you know, we're going to have an organization. It's going to start up and it's going to help fund and help promote you and your movement. And right now we're just going to get it out there. And that was the American Liberty League. And the people who were in support of that were people like General Foods, makers of Maxwell House Coffee, Bird's Eye, Colgate, U.S. Steel, Heinz, General Motors. You know, a lot of that came out during the McCormick Dickstein Committee, which was an investigation of all this after Smedley Butler and a reporter that he basically brought into his confidence brought their evidence to Congress. Right. I thought that was just a fascinating chapter of history that isn't talked about. I watched that plot to overthrow FDR documentary that you sent. And it is just so crazy that you have this, again, really generically named Liberty League cooked up by the heads of these very corporations that we know are clearly not the good guys. In the documentary, they also say JP Morgan was a big financial backer of this. So, of course, these should be red flags that are like, wait a second. Uh, I don't know if I want what these guys want. And sure enough, they tried to stage this coup. And if it wasn't for Butler being like, actually, I'm not going to uh, lead a revolution against the president, it could have happened. Yeah, well, they were talking about, I think, five or 600,000 veterans marching on D.C., kind of crossing the Rubicon, as it were in order to cement this and basically cause that transition of power. And also, I think Prescott Bush was involved at some degree with this, right? Yeah, I believe Hamburg American Line or UBS, the bank that he was in charge of, was involved with the American Liberty League. But both the Hamburg American Line and UBS for union banking were involved in banking with the Nazis, funding them during the war. And the Hamburg American line was also involved in transporting American journalists to Nazi Germany and Nazi spies coming back on the boats on their way back uh, prior to the war. Hmm. So he was definitely tied up in all this. And actually, Prescott Bush was the father of Herbert Walker Bush. And the ties, you know, continued when, when, you know, Herbert Walker Bush was running for president against, I think it was Clinton. The second time around, he had to basically expunge some people from his campaign who were, I mean, these weren't just Nazi sympathizers. They were full-blown Nazi war criminals. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the level of, it's like direct, it's a direct connection right there. And then basically, you know, these ties continued through to the younger Bush during his years, you know, just not to as prominent a degree as that. Mm -hmm. Right. Anyone can fast forward kind of from the FDR chapter we're talking about and see the successes and failures of the fascists in America. Clearly, they got pretty high on the 
pyramid as time went on. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I believe it's Glenn Eden talks about the CIA itself being a basically Nazi fascist organization at its founding. The OSS, it was largely made up of military people and Wall Street people who were recruited from Wall Street. And it's like, why are they recruiting, you know, financial advisors and stockbrokers and stuff like that? It's because, you know, there were kind of two groups in the OSS. There was those who were primarily about the military side, but then there were the people who were making sure that they'd be fulfilling financial interests. And it was more the financial interests that took over the leadership as the CIA was founded. And also there was this huge influx of paperclip Nazis that were joining the ranks as well. Basically, they were getting their hands on anybody they could to make sure that, you know, they, they stayed out of the Soviets' hands. Right. And I love that concept of Nazi survival, the kind of stuff that Joseph Farrell and Catherine Austin Fitz talk about. And they take it into that realm of tracking the black budget as evidence for a breakaway civilization born out of this Nazi survival. Farrell uses the term fascist international quite a bit. And it is just fascinating because there definitely seems to be evidence that that plan was in place when you look at things like the Red House report. And in it, they talk about an eventual reemergence. And so it does make you curious how long it would lay dormant before that reemergence would happen. Well, in that report, they talk about it in basically initially being a economic coalition. And then at some point, it would kind of foment into the Reich. There would be this political conversion that would take place. And I think that, you know, we've seen with the, with the creation of the EU and, you know, we've, we've gone through those financial cycles since 2008, where every time Greece is, you know, hard up for cash, who do they go running to? It's Germany. Because Germany is really kind of the economic hegemony of the EU. Then just recently, Germany started to consolidate their military with other European military units. And I think that's part of the implementation of that, that second part of the Red House report. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the articles you had sent me about that even talks about the very specific three-part plan that involved embedding their people in certain corporations and laying low in that regard. And it's like, yeah, a lot of that has happened. I mean, what are the big corporations? The oil industry, big pharma, which is petrochemicals. And we always talk about on conspiracy shows like this, eugenics campaigns, which is Nazi ideology. And a lot of German companies do seem to still be at the head of their respective industries. Well, you talked about eugenics and the Nazi eugenics program was actually based on American eugenics programs in the early 20th century. Also, even today, some of the heads of the Human Genome Project are grandsons of Nazi sympathizers. One of them was grandson of Dulles, and another one was a grandson of Harriman. Mm. So Brown Brothers Harriman. So you know that the elites love to keep things within the family. They are obsessed with their bloodlines and everything like that, and that that deals in part with why this stuff keeps getting handed down. Right. It didn't seem like World War II had a good way to end, except for for them to go underground. You know, it's not like the Nazis necessarily lost the war; they just kind of dispersed. So basically, during the war, 
Many industrialists in the United States and in Britain were involved with supporting the Nazis. Supporters in America included Remington, Ford, GM, GE, IBM, Standard Oil, DuPont. Also, the, the Nazi propaganda machine was based off of Edward Bernays' propaganda techniques and things like that that were developed after World War One. And the American education system was also based on German education when that was set up. I mean, this is prior to the war, but that was set up in the late 19th, early 20th century with Carnegie's and other industrialists setting up these schools. And they were based basically on two things. There was the caste system in India. That's why we have school districts. And then the other thing was horse training techniques, which were eventually turned into a indoctrination program by the Weimar Republic. And so those were the two bases that went into creating our, our modern day educational system in the United States. Mm -hmm. So getting back to the transactions that were going on during the war, FDR knew that there was money and weapons and fuel and ammunition that were being provided to Germany through these American companies and often an intermediary in one of the neutral countries like Switzerland or Norway or, you know, things like that. And those intermediaries, you know, would get their cut and then they'd forward it on to the Germans. And so a lot of these business contacts were what the Germans ended up utilizing once they got out of the country. And those rat lines that were used to get the Germans out of the country were actually founded by the Catholic Church huh. because they had basically diplomatic immunity for couriers and they would be able to coordinate this without anybody stumbling across it. And they also helped to fund the Nazis and they didn't want that to be known. So they ended up helping them with their survival plan. Hmm. And actually, at the end of the war, the American forces were basically coming in and, you know, with the British and things like that. But the, the groups that are basically founded to control post-war Germany were actually being seated with these Nazi sympathizers. And they told the Allies to go talk to the Catholic priest in each of those towns to find out who were good people to run that town or run this industry or run that as that transition took place. Uh, so who do you think they pointed out? Of course. <laughs> it's like classic regulatory capture. It's something we talk about all the time that the FDA is not actually there for your safety. These agencies that we think are in place to protect us from the nefarious corporations that really don't give a fuck, they're just as compromised. So it only provides a false sense of security. And that, of course, gets into left and right feelings about these agencies that people on the far right would be like, well, let's get rid of them because they're no good. And it's like, well, pfft, that seems like it's not going to be any better. The point is we need to make them work for us, not disband them completely. Otherwise, we will just have glyphosate soaked crops and everybody will be on petrochemical pills more than they already are. Well, regulatory agencies nowadays, they're, you know, paper tigers or toothless lions or whatever you want to call them. They're just kind of a, a placeholder for what we should, should really have. But a lot of them actually act 
as more of a shield for these corporate and industrial interests because they they present this public facade that we're doing stuff when actually they're just kind of like crossing the I's and dotting the T's or something like that. Right. And then they become the dominant authorities on what's good in a certain sector. And so then it also works against the alternatives that we've talked about in the past, which is like people start to think, oh, well, if something doesn't have that FDA stamp of approval, it's probably not going to work or it might even be harmful. So you're gambling with your own health and safety if you don't trust the experts. So it really is like a double whammy for people and a serious win-win for these guys. Yeah. So getting back to the end of the of the war, FDR knew that, you know, a lot of these transactions were taking place, but he actually died just a few weeks after the end of the war. And what his plan had been was once the Allies came into Germany, they were going to get a hold of the German bankers and have them finger their accomplices in the United States. But because of his death, and he was holding all of his contacts about who he knew about who were Nazi sympathizers in the United States, once he died, that didn't really go anywhere because he was he was keeping it so close. He didn't really tell anybody what was going on because he feared that it might get out to the wrong people. Mm. So that's one of the big reasons why after the war, it was just allowed to flourish. Yeah. So at this point, I think it would probably be best to start going into Reich and Reich's views on fascism. Fair enough. Before we go into that, I just wanted to ask and maybe step back and say, you know, we're doing this elemental series. Why step in and do a fascism episode specifically now? Like we really didn't say up front why this does seem to be so timely in your opinion or why it might be so important right now to get into this history, fascinating as it is. Well, I mean, I've been keeping an eye on this for a while. And, you know, a lot of my research and Operation Gladio touched on this and things like that. So it really has to do a lot with what we're seeing today in terms of the political climate. You're seeing Nazis marching in the streets and you're seeing this clash of ideologies that's happening all over America between families, you know, and and between different groups that are allying each other and just the whole way it's going seems like, you know, it's all being kind of steered towards fascism either way. Right. When you look at a lot of what's going on on the left and on the right, they're both talking about, you know, I mean, just look at, okay, we, there's this whole fake news thing going on. And what's the response is to say, okay, well, we're going to say this is fake news. We're going to say that's fake news, but it's just kind of like ranking systems and algorithms and, you know, not things that actually would explain why or what's the methodology that's going into this. It's just kind of like, here's what's good for you. Eat up. Exactly. It's like, it's easy to criticize the right, of course, right now, because they are the party in power, but you are correct in that it seems to be coming from both sides. I think it's just because both sides are so polarized to such extremes that the idea of cooperation is impossible. So then it becomes, well, I just need to get my way. And how do you get your way is fascism. You know, you get your way with dictators and authority and centralized control And the left has got this punch a Nazi meme, which from a centrist interpretation is punch anyone who doesn't agree with me as long as they're labeled a Nazi. It's okay 
to incite violence against them. You got them doing the word police stuff, attacking all these comedians. They want everything to be PC. I mean, this is nanny state type stuff. And I fucking hate it. But then, of course, on the right, you look at Trump's cabinet. I mean, people, I don't know how people think this guy is on their side. You can just go down the list. I actually took a big list out of one of the articles that you gave me. And it says that five of the 15 people nominated by Trump as cabinet secretaries have no public sector experience and have only spent their entire careers in the corporate sector. That would be more business people with no public sector experience than have ever served in any cabinet at any one time. That uh, Betsy DeVos chick, she's the uh, education secretary. She's been a billionaire married to an Amway conglomerate. Andrew Putster has been nominated as labor secretary. He's a billionaire CEO of a fast food chain. Don't forget DeVos's, you know, brother is the head of Blackwater. Right, right. That's another connection. That Wilbur Ross guy who is a nominee for commerce secretary He's a billionaire financier who invests in buying and selling companies in distressed industries specifically who made his entire fortune or who made his early fortune as a fund manager at the Rothschild Group. It's just crazy. Vincent Viola, Trump's nominee for army secretary. He's a billionaire, former chairman of the New York Mercantile Exchange. These are all connected people. Gary Cohn worked for Goldman Sachs. So, like, if you're going to criticize Obama's cabinet for being stacked with CFR members and lawyers that work for banks, you got to do the same thing here. What about Rex Tillerson, the dude from ExxonMobil? Like, he is not a good candidate for secretary of state just because he ran a fucking oil company. So it really is sickening to see these exact same people in a cabinet of what's thought to be the polar opposite party. It's just nonsense. Yeah, I agree completely. Before we get to the Reich stuff, I think I'll talk about Operation Gladio, Carol Rosen and, and Bernard von Braun, and a bit more of the Red House plan. That's okay. Sure. Absolutely. So one of the things that, you know, I think is worth mentioning with regard to the Nazis is also that there's a witness in the form of Dr. Carol Rosen. She used to work with Werner von Braun when he was at Fairchild Industries. And what he told her, he was dying of cancer at the time, was basically that there's going to be a push for space-based weapons, and there's going to be several phases to what's going to be driving this. The first is basically the communists, which she already saw at the time. And then he said it was going to be basically terrorists, countries of interest, what we call them now, but like, you know, third-party tinpot dictators. Then it was going to be asteroids and then an alien invasion is what he told her. And, right. and what he said was, you know, and it's all made up. None of it's true. It's all complete fiction. So the thing is that right there, there's a well known Nazi who was at a high enough level to actually know what the heck was going on with this stuff. And another thing of it that's interesting with Werner von Braun is he did some Disney documentary films and stuff like that. There was one about space travel. And in that, he actually said that the future of space travel was electric gravitic craft. So that's mm-hmm. another interesting thing. 
But basically what he was alluding to there with, you know, terrorism was what has been known today as Operation Gladio. So at the end of World War II, basically what's happening is there's Germany split down the middle. You've got half of Germany over on the Soviet side. You've got half of Germany on the NATO side. And then, and I mean, what, what a great way for it to end for Germany to be able to play both sides off of each other, right? <laughs> so, right. And actually, you know, when they were picking out people to be in charge of things in Germany during that reconstruction period, the person they chose was, I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but he was basically an SS general who was put in charge of the secret services. And he started what they call the stay behind missions and ran them in Europe. And those are where they, they had different units of soldiers from the allies, but also a lot of them were former Nazis who were embedded in cells within Europe. And the initial plan for this was, okay, they're there in case of a Soviet invasion. But basically, once you had nuclear weapons take prominence in the 60s, basically once the stockpiles were built up on both sides, and there was kind of this, well, we don't want mutually assured destruction, so kind of a ground war isn't really on the plate for right now. There became this emphasis on clandestine operations and being able to leverage these people in the case of domestic threats. Mm. So in this case, what what that meant was if there was opposition to certain policies, if there was a rising communist movement within the country and there was a vote coming up, then you'd see more of these terrorist attacks happen to kind of steer the country away from communism by these, you know, you basically got Nazis being involved in all this, but what they were doing is they were creating these terrorist attacks and then false flag blaming them on communists. Of course. Or leftists. Yeah. And so that's kind of the foundation. And this is, you know, basically from like 1940s and 50s up through to the 90s that this was going on. So you're talking about 50 years. And then what happened was when it came out, there was this guy who was involved in one of these organizations and he went to the press. And when he did that, it kind of blew this whole thing open. It turned out that, you know, the secret services of all these different countries were involved, basically everybody in NATO, as well as the United States. And the CIA was involved, MI6 was involved, you know, all these kind of clandestine groups. And it was, it was this big brouhaha. So basically those operations weren't, went inactive at that time, but there were also operations that were, you know, set up in Greece and Turkey. And Turkey was what actually things fell back to. And kind of the more European operations up to the nineties, Daniel Ganser, he does a very good job of discussing those. And then going into Turkey and kind of the proliferation of the what's called Gladio B networks, where you start getting into Arab terrorists and things like that. That's covered by Sibel Edmonds, who was a Turkish translator working at the at the FBI at the time. And she actually stumbled across, you know, a cell within the FBI that was trying to, you know, derail her investigations into Line 11. And then her partner on the Boiling Frogs post podcast 
James Corbett, he does a very good job of kind of elaborating on, you know, how that's grown into this Islamic network and how it's gone back into Europe and things like that. And actually, one thing that's very important to note with all this is that Muhammad Atta, one of the hijackers in 9-11, he was actually, he, he already knew how to fly when he was learning how to fly in the United States and Florida. And he had like, you know, four different passports and identities and things like that. And this is all coming from his girlfriend. There's a very good interview by the maker of the documentary, Mahabharata's Flying Circus, and that's available on YouTube. But she basically talks about him, you know, like doing cocaine, drinking all the time. You know, he always had, you know, lots and lots of money. He was going to like strip clubs and, you know, not, not really the, the profile of a, you know, adherent Islamicist, more of like, okay, a fly-by-night CIA <laughs> operative or something. Right. And when she says that when he actually, like he was hanging out with South Africans and Austrians, and when he actually got his orders for what he was going to do, the guy he, was, he met with, his name was Reinhardt. So, you know, you're talking about the same sort of group. And actually, Osama bin Laden, when he was growing up, he was like being bounced on the knees of Nazis. Because there was this whole relationship between Arab fascists, and actually there are all sorts of different fascists in different countries who actually went to work for the SS. There was an Indian SS contingent, uh, Turkish SS contingent. Like all these different countries. And actually, in Turkey, there was a general called Atakirk. And Atakirk was the one who slaughtered and killed millions of Armenians. And that was the model that Hitler used for his exterminations. Hmm. So, you know, there's all these ties between, you know, the Germans and these Arab fascists. The primary group was the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. So, and all of this stuff that we're seeing today in terms of terrorist attacks, I think it all kind of really boils down to this Nazi survival, this Nazi network that survived the war. And actually, Reinhard Galen was the head of German intelligence after the war, the, the SS general. And he was, he was the one who was really pumping up Truman right after the war to see Russia as a threat. Like he was fording all this false intelligence telling him what they were doing that they weren't really doing. Well, let me ask you this, just because I know it's going to come up in the comments section and a lot of listeners might be thinking, what about Israel's involvement in state-sponsored terrorism? Because in events like the Charlie Hebdo situation, it seems like you can reverse engineer it, look back from that point and see that world leaders who tended to be criticizing Israel's actions they seem to be the countries who soon after got hit with some form of terrorism. So I felt like that was a pretty sound conclusion. And I don't think it has to be either or, of course. It's always like anyone who spends time on the Nazis, you'll get comments, oh, well, you're distracting from the spotlight, which should be on Israel and vice versa. But I don't understand why it can't be both. But I don't know. I guess I would just ask you, how would you fold that in? Well, so, I mean, anybody who really takes an objective look at Israel, who are the Jewish fascists, right? 
<laughs> you look at what they're doing to the Palestinians. Right. If that is if that isn't a multi-mile concentration camp, I don't know what is. Now, so basically, the Zionists were kind of Jewish fascists, and they wanted to impose their authority on the Holy Land and take that over. And that was something that was basically implemented at the end of World War II. But leading up to that, Hitler actually struck a deal with the Zionists before the final plan was implemented. He would allow Zionist Jews to leave the country and go to Palestine. And so the Zionists were setting up little colonies in Palestine even before the war. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's a kind of a subtle thing because especially since most people don't know about that but i mean when you look at the aftermath in terms of what has happened to the people who used to live on on the land you can see that you know clearly it's not a a wholesome expression of government over there of course and you know i didn't mean to take you off track but it just seems to be one of those things that you have to mention on a show like this Fascism comes in many different wrappers and many different flavors, and you'd be crazy not to oppose all of it. Oh, definitely. And we're, we're going to get into more of that as we continue. Fair enough. So, you know, you, you kind of got to break it up into chunks because they're so big. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> now I think we're ready for uh, Reich. Sure, sure. So Wilhelm Reich, we've talked about him before. He was He was a contemporary of Freud. But one thing that you know, we haven't talked about really is his talks and books about the role of fascism. And he wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And actually, he was pursued by both the SS and the KGB across multiple countries. So he's someone who's very familiar. He was also visited by the FBI, but that was basically to make sure that he wasn't a Nazi once he came to America. I wanted to read this from our emails where you say just with a little more detail what you pretty much just said and that Reich was pursued by the SS, KGB, and FBI over his theories, research, and books. There is also substantial evidence that it was a KGB mole in the FBI that actually got the case against Reich started that resulted in his incarceration and death shortly before his release of heart failure, quote-unquote. But... Reich, in fact, sits alone as the sole person in the history of the United States to have been required to burn his own books and research materials in a small bonfire on the lawn or to have all copies of his books burned by court order in 1956 and 1960. He was also a part of the Nazi book burning. So if there's an authoritarian entity anywhere in the vicinity of Dr. Reich, he seems to have caught their attention and immediate wrath. And I think that's just great to point out because it's like, yeah, any ideas the elite want to crush, those are ideas that I don't mind hearing about. You know what I'm saying? Like, clearly there's a reason to listen if no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, these authority figures are like, no, crush this. This has to go away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's probably a great place to start. The way he discussed it was as reactionary and revolutionary thought. What I would characterize that is more authoritarian and egalitarian thought. Authoritarianism is a structure dominated by fear, centralized authority, and psychological and sexual oppression. An egalitarian social structure is one in which is characterized by respect, consideration for all, a decentralized authority, and psychological and sexual freedom. 
I'd like to read a little bit from that primer I gave you on authoritarian and egalitarian thought. Sure. To just kind of give some very clear examples and different modes of philosophy. So egalitarian values, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, reciprocity, authoritarian values, look strong, successful, rich, your strength must control your weakness, strong men must control the weak. Votes rule for egalitarians, democracy, rights is an effective vote, equal opportunities, and money and power. In authoritarian values, money rules, oligarchy has the right to trick voters, they set privileges and ranks and money and power. Egalitarian values are human rights, freedom of the press and info, emancipation, integration, voting rights, women's suffrage, equal pay for equal work, nature conservation. Authoritarian values are property rights, freedom to own the press, slavery, people as property, segregation by race, wealth, poll taxes and intimidation, women's silence, traditional roles and rewards, and to exploit resources. There's some very clear differences in the way that these two philosophies think about how power should be expressed within the world. In his book, Wright makes the arguments that these modes of expression of power are not instilled in children primarily from their education or later employment, but rather in the structure of the family. It has been discussed previously on your show, for the first years of development, their brain waves are such that they're actually kind of in a trance for the first five to eight years of their life. And that brainwave that's especially elevated is a theta brainwave. And actually, one thing I'd like to mention is that seven, about seven years is the length of time in anthrop- anthroposophical schools where children's learning is characterized by play and they're encouraged to explore the environment with supervision from an adult. So, I mean, even as far back as Rudolf Steiner, there seems to have been, he understood kind of what this, what this meant in terms of how development should unfold. So it's during this time that the child's boundaries are being set and their character is developing that has a prime role in development of their role in society. If during these formative years, boundaries are set on pure authority, a child learns not to question authority as this is often met with punishment. In a more egalitarian method of child rearing, children are taught the reasons at a rudimentary level behind the boundaries being set. And if questions are posed, further answers are given. These two modes of rearing may be characterized as patriarchal and matriarchal, as each embodies either projective or receptive modes of expression. These modes of sexual, ex- the modes of sexual expression allowable to children are also very different in these philosophical foundations. So, in his book, Reich discusses matriarchal families as being primarily characteristic of indigenous societies, and patriarchal societies being characterized by civilized societies. And if you look at kind of the way that they look at livestock in indigenous societies, typically what would happen is you would hunt, but the animal, it's free to express itself. It, it moves throughout the land. There aren't any fences blocking it off. And it's basically, you know, it is what it is. And you're just, you're just going out and taking what you need. Whereas with the civilized societies, they've decided to put strict limits on the movement and behavior of their animals, domesticating them and basically dominating them for their control. And so I think this is this is something to take into consideration when you understand 
the ways that these two mindsets look at people, you know, just, just other living creatures to begin with. In matriarchal societies, childhood sexual expression tends to be characterized by the choices of the child with guidance. They're allowed to play doctor and do whatever they, they want, as long as it's not, you know, something that's really disturbed or pathological. In patriarchal societies, childhood expression is characterized by its negation. Children and adolescents are discouraged at every turn from exploring their sexuality until biological maturity or marriage. And primarily in, in patriarchal societies, traditionally, it's been marriage. So that's actually a way of controlling the rights of sexuality in the case of arranged marriages, which were often the case in the past. Mm-hmm. This repression prevents natural expression of the child's most basic biological drives and retarded and confined the psychological development of the child. At its essence, childhood is the act of adapting and developing biology to the environment, and to restrict that development is to embed pathology in the psychology of the child. Reich previously researched these mechanisms on his concepts of character and body armoring in his work character analysis. Hmm. Reich also speaks out about communism and the mass psychology of fascism. The communists suppressed Dr. Reich's theories, and we talked about him being pursued by the KGB. Now, that actually happened as a result of a KGB agent who was writing articles for Harper's and the uh, New Republic. And one thing that's really interesting there is actually that that same organization who was writing these articles had Henry Wallace, the former vice president of FDR, as one of the KGB agents involved. And he was actually kicked out of the FDR administration run for the, I believe, his second term because of these affiliations. Interesting. So let's just back up a little bit to some of Reich's ideas, because I really am intrigued by extreme levels of control. I just find it fascinating. And whether it's right or wrong, I just like to explore those types of ideas. So the thought that something like the nuclear family, which in our society seems fairly automatic or self-evident just from our context, to think that that could be engineered, the model of father and mother as sole authority figures being engineered to create a structured order, like the separation from the tribe, and I guess most importantly, prepare children for a life of servitude, especially since, like you say, those first seven years of a child's life is when all the imprinting is done. So creating this type of paradigm in those years is what might breed a culture that is okay with top-down control. I do find that to be an interesting idea. We've talked about it in the school system. Of course, it's very obvious there but to think that it goes even deeper and even further back is quite compelling. I, I really don't know what to think about it, but I like the concept of exploring it. Well, so the thing is that basically what Reich notes in his book is that more tribal societies that were not really in a, at a civilized level of development, what we would call civilization, where there's large social structures and centralized authority. You know, you might have a council of elders or things like that. 
but it wasn't something you know where there was there was a huge amount of power that anyone could really have over anybody else and people were always allowed to speak out their viewpoint in meetings with the elders and things like that so it has a lot to do with authority in and of itself and the thing is as you civilize basically what you're doing is you're you're planting crops you're getting livestock and you're basically trying to assert your authority on nature so right there there's there's a inherent kind of authoritarian aspect to what people think of as as the civilization procedure and then also on top of that as these societies start to grow they, they start to create cities where you have more separation between the production of food and the consumption of food, and you start to have more of a hierarchy and more of a bureaucracy that becomes involved. You need to extract more food from the people who are working at the periphery of the city to feed it in order to be able to support the populations that you have. And in doing so, there becomes a concentration of power and wealth. Hmm. See, I always thought I wanted an egalitarian lifestyle, but I've got friends who have visited several communities and came away from them all pretty disappointed. And during the Occupy days, I was pretty involved in the little sub-community that popped up in San Diego with the whole lending libraries and group sharing types of experimentation. And there was some real positivity about it, but without some form of hierarchy, I also just saw a lot of chaos where you have some self-appointed loudmouths taking the stage, and because they were trying to get a consensus for everything, 50 people all had to weigh in on the simplest of things. I guess one example would be there were older folks who came out and said, look, we want to be here rallying against the 1%, but we've got to work tomorrow. So if we're going to stay down here in the city square, we've got to have some quiet hours. And then you got a bunch of homeless hippie kids saying, well, if you have a job, that kind of sounds like your problem, not mine. We just want to play music and spread joy. So there was just no direction and no accountability. And of course, this is just one example and there are other ways it can be done. But the few examples I do have didn't seem as advantageous as I was expecting. So I guess to make it a question... Why does it seem to me that communal living or egalitarian groups typically seem to be just scraping by rather than thriving if they can even get off the ground? Well, what, what you're talking about is anarchy to start with. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was. And that's not really what you see in egalitarian societies. You see more input from the people who are involved in doing the work in those societies and were involved in actually maintaining the relationships with the land. But you can still have larger accumulations of people and you can have larger societal structures as long as that link is maintained, that, you know, there there is able to be this feedback. But as these indigenous societies become civilized, it becomes almost too big to make that happen. At a in a centralized way, of and course. things tend to centralize as you get into these civilized structures. Mm -hmm. Now there is evidence of being able to do this. I mean, there's Mondragon in Spain, which is a you know worker-owned engineering cooperative, and you know 
they basically have it so that people are able to to vote and control how things are done within the company and they've been very successful so it's not like it can't be done in a civilized you know environment but it hasn't tended to work out that way that's kind of something where that had to be founded on its own to to start with and there are more companies that are starting to look at that model but there still aren't a whole lot of examples right and that seems to be one of my issues is just that there aren't a ton of examples of success in this area and it could be because of sabotage uh you know co-opting it could be the same reason why Reich's work was destroyed we don't want examples out there that show you a different way but i guess that leads us to a section about some of the solves for fascism and authoritarianism if it's so pervasive that the family structure schooling and our repressive sexuality are all tied up in it Maybe the aliens built us to be subservient. Maybe there is no other way. What else can we, can we do? How else can we be? Well, um, I'd like to get back to that in a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. I'd like to continue talking a bit about Reich's work. And then that is a part of Reich's work, but I'd like to get through this other section first. Let's do it. To, to kind of explore the, the sexuality link a bit more, as well as kind of brain anatomy and how that feeds into all this. I'd love to hear the data that supports that, because it is kind of an out-there idea. Yeah, so I want to start to slog through that first. So one notable difference between matriarchal and patriarchal societies, which Reich does not discuss in great depth, is the form of marriage beyond the monogamous marriage. In his book, he considered it untenable and kept his discussion within the context of monogamous relationships. Polygamy has three main forms. There's polygyny, which is multiple wives, polyandry, which is multiple husbands, and group marriages, which is uh, multiple husbands and multiple wives. Of the 1,231 societies listed in the 1980 Ethnographic Atlas, 186 were found to be monogamous, 453 had occasional polygyny, and 588 had more frequent polygyny, and four had polyandry. The expression of Polygyny can be characterized by women having little say in the arrangement and be traded for some sort, some form of dowry for political, economic, and religious favors being bestowed upon her father as head of the family. Polyandry tends to be characterized by a especially harsh environment, lending to the need for greater stability in the marriage, and this also tends to be arranged. Now, the final form, the group marriage, is one that I find interesting because it can be tied to an example of another organism, the bonobo chimpanzee, which has a very similar social structure. So I actually first found out about this phenomenon. I didn't even know it existed before I saw a documentary where they were talking about a Tibetan town. And basically they showed, you know, women having multiple husbands and husbands having multiple wives. And it was the sort of thing where, you know, you might have two or three wives and she might, one of your wives might have two or three husbands. And, you know, it was just kind of this fluid arrangement where, okay, if you don't really like each other anymore, it isn't going to destroy the family. You just kind of say, okay, well, our marriage has ended. 
there isn't really any punishment or anything that gets imposed on on the family as as a result and you just kind of end things and move on but you you can also keep it going with your other partners that you have and in this case typically the you know it's kind of the the mother is the root of the family and the mother's aunts might help out with with raising the children as well as the husbands and the children aren't even really aware of who their father is. They just know that this is my first dad. This is my second dad. This is my third dad. <laughs> See, I don't like that. That's the part where I start to be like, hmm, do I really want that? Well, I'm not saying that. I, I mean, I'm not in any sort of arrangement like that myself. I'm just pointing it out because it has corollaries with the bonobos. Right. And it's just a different way we could potentially live and it would have totally different effects. Because you can see how dowries and the purchasing of wives and the authoritarian father creates a little totalitarian state in the household. You can see that. So it is worth exploring alternatives. But even without having, you know, this plurality of relationships, you could still have, I mean, our current society, it's definitely centered around the father and the father's family. Mm-hmm. It's like the wife typically goes to be with him. So there's, but in this other arrangement, this more maternal relation arrangement, it's actually the family doesn't typically get broken up when there's a ending of the marriage. The father just kind of goes on and does what, what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So it, there isn't a real breakup of the family you know, there's still the ants who are able to be leveraged and things like that. So, but I mean, this is also in a small town, so it's not like people are really moving away and, you know, extended families are pretty, pretty much still intact. What about data on uh, fatherless households? Now, I know obviously our society has a lot of things, a lot of factors that would be affecting a person's life, but what type of effects does removing that component have? I mean, I guess it might not manifest the way it would in a, in a full society that was doing that kind of thing. But in our society, it seems to create more problems than benefits. Yeah, there, there's definitely, I mean, the thing is, in, in the situation I'm talking about, there's there would be other father figures. A bigger network. It's bigger not really network. an apples to apples comparison, of course. But also in the patriarchal family, the father is the main breadwinner, you know, and so everybody is kind of dependent on that person. That's true. And society is structured that if you don't have that figure, it's very, very hard for uh, a single mom to make a living wage, which has all kinds of repercussions. Yeah, even today. But if you look back at like 40s, 50s, oh, it was completely devastating. I mean, this is why this is why little girls would go to college to meet a man rather than to learn things. It's true. Because that's how everything was structured. Very true. So I'd like to go ahead and start talking about the bonobo connection. Absolutely. So the bonobo chimp was first discovered in 1929 in the form of a skull specimen, and it wasn't really understood to be different from other chimpanzees until the early 50s. So this is an example that would not have been one that Reich himself would have been aware of. In the late 1970s, chimpanzees which are much more closely related to humans, became the model for the human ancestor. Before that, it was the baboon. The traits that led 
people to take this model were cooperative hunting, food sharing, tool use, power politics, and primitive warfare. But as Bonobo, and so this was kind of seen as the model for why we are who we are, why we have patriarchal societies, why, you know, authority and domination lead our societies. But as bonobo society has begun to be studied in more detail, it provides an alternative view of our closest relatives. The bonobo chimpanzee in their society, sex is common, often performed in a mock or ritual fashion and is almost nonchalant as a handshake. While not dominating their interactions, it seems to act as a way to prevent potential conflicts. The charging displays of bonobos are much more subdued than those of common chimpanzees, which can often extend into protracted tantrums in the common chimp. In the common chimp, dominant males keep a tight rein on the reproductive rights of females with a gang of subordinate males. In bonobo society, if a female is accosted by a male, the females will band together to defend her against the stronger male. So while some may point to the role of hierarchy and male domination, in natural societies like lions or chimpanzees, really we don't need to look any farther than the bonobo for another model. It is interesting. Yeah. Now, what might cause that? Why would free expression of sexuality, why would it act to reduce aggression and reduce domination? Because that is basically the main thrust of Reich's argument, is that that's the case. No pun intended. And this is a good example of that. But what it, what would be the underlying cause? Like, okay, okay, the, you know, the bonobos are, are rubbing their, their hoo-hahs and their wee-wees together, you know, and that's kind of their handshake. And they are a bunch of pussies. So <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? What are these, these ape hippie communes yeah. doing, man? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So... So if these different modalities of sexual expression have such an influence on the development of character and societal structure, might, what might be the underlying cause? The amygdala, which controls the fight-or-flight response, is also responsible for the sex drive. For example, one study found a relation between the size of the amygdala in patients with epilepsy, and another found that patients with a larger amygdala after neurosurgery had greater sex drive. This suggests that the sexual expression and aggression are not just psychologically but physiologically linked. And what we are witnessing in the bonobos is a form of cultural expression which taps into this inherent biology for negating stress and aggression. So it's kind of like a biohack that they've developed in their society. This is completely in agreement with Dr. Rice's assertions and at odds with the current narrative regarding what authority you know, the, the origins of, of authority at a fundamental level. Indeed, it would tend to lend to an authoritarian, egalitarian paradigm rather than a left-right paradigm with regard to fascism. There is more direct research to support this hypothesis as studies have shown that in response to fear, liberals tend to become more conservative in their thinking and in response to a lack of fear, like imagining you're invincible like Superman, conservatives become more liberal in their thinking. Hmm. You know, those are some interesting studies that have been done. And while we're on the topic of the brain, I think it should be mentioned that the more authority one wields, the less that somebody tends to take into account others' needs and feelings. 
So this has been recently substantiated by showing that people in positions of authority are actually not having the same mirror neuron responses than people with little or no authority. The role of power on the psyche has often been likened to being drunk. And this is kind of what that shows, is you become kind of emotionally dampened as a result of power. So to explore the current paradigm of thought with regard to the left-right paradigm further, we should start to talk about what fascism has been commonly defined as in the past. A lot of people think of the quote by Benito Mussolini, which I'm not even sure where it might be attributed to in terms of the original source, but it says, fascism should rightly be called corporatism, as this is the merger of corporate and government power. In practice, liberals tend to think of it as a corporate as corporations controlling the government, and conservatives tend to think of it as government controlling corporations. In both cases expressed by a dominating Kafkaesque bureaucracy. The embodiment of each of these modes can be found in the fascist or communist models that are commonly understood, but I believe this is a bit of a simplification and one which leads to the left-right thinking that I'm discussing right now. Mm -hmm. In this paradigm, there are two sources of power, the state and the corporation. People are not really part of this equation, as each of these sources of power is hierarchical and bureaucratic in nature. Today, people rank themselves along a political spectrum of left and right, where left is characterized by state power and right is characterized by corporate power. This dichotomy is limiting and does not accurately characterize the source of power or the different ways that power can be expressed. For instance, during the Middle Ages in Europe, it would have been definitely characterized as an authoritarian regime with an autocratic ruler granted authority by a larger religious body with its own autonomous leader. This doesn't fit into the definition of fascism in either case, but little difference would be noticed by the average person on the street, besides from which philosophy is being espoused when you compare feudalism with communism or fascism. Right. So I believe the left-right paradigm is a sort of mental trap designed to limit people's thinking in a way that is mirrored across opposing perspectives, and that leads to opposite conclusions based off of the same information. Fair enough. I think that's a great breakdown. And maybe to amend the definition that refers to it as just corporations, you could just say corporations and cabals. I mean, little groups of top-down leadership. Is that fair to say? You know, it, it's basically a merger of state and corporate power where, in the case of the Middle Ages, the state was a dictatorship you know, and right. it was granted its legitimacy by the other main industry at the time, which was religion. Right. You could consider that a corporation, basically. Basically a big monopoly on people's spirituality that was, you know, sucking up tithes and, and you know, issuing, uh, what, what, what was it called? It was what Martin Luther spoke out against when he tapped his his little decree on the door of the church. It was the whatever, where they were basically handing out pieces of paper to forgive people for their sins and charging them to see about some money. I can't remember off the top of my head. So I guess at this point, I think we should probably talk about the last part of Wilhelm Reich's discussion about fascism, and that is work democracy. Yeah, interesting premise for sure. 
Yeah. So basically in the past, you know, we've had different ways of organizing work. One way was basically you paid someone to perform a task. You might have a person who was a slave. And in Roman times, maybe they were, they voluntarily sold themselves into slavery or they, you know, in colonial times, they were often captured and and forced into slavery. You might also have a debt-slave relationship in the form of indentured servitude. But now what a lot of people are talking about is wage slavery. And I think that's, you know, a, a very good concept to start with, since a lot of your listeners would be familiar with that. Oh, yeah. But basically, the idea is that you're dependent on a wage. You have to have that in order to be able to meet your needs. And in order to do so, you basically sell your sovereignty to an employer and say, okay, I will be here this many hours a week while I'm there. I'm your robot. I'm your tool. Do with me as you wish. And, you know, I can't really say anything about it. But in the legal framework, you're not just a robot. You're not just a tool. You aren't just being manipulated to exact the will of your master. You are still a person, but it's basically kind of an abridged personhood while you're in that relationship. Because if you don't comply with what you're being told, then you can be fired for insubordination under basically every labor law that's that's around. But the thing is, if something criminal is going on, you're still culpable. You know, if you do a criminal act as a part of your job or you're being asked to, then you're in a catch-22 where you basically have to resign. You, you can't say no according to labor law, but you're still responsible if, any, if you do this criminal act. Right. And that is really just kind of showing that you aren't, you're still responsible for your actions. You're just granted no authority. You know, the, the idea of work democracy, as Reich talks about it, is basically the idea that you would have some authority over your work. You know, in the case of working for a corporation or working for a business, it would be the sort of situation where, okay, I'm here. And typically what's done today in a lot of cooperatives or a lot of work democracy sort of arrangements is that you go to an assembly or something like that once a week to kind of give feedback on the overall flow of things, but it's still kind of hierarchical in reality. A lot of the day-to-day stuff, your boss is still responsible to you, but it's not really as direct as I think it should perhaps be. I would say, you know, it should be the sort of thing where you actually elect your boss. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine if, say, you know, you have a bunch of factory workers or you have a bunch of engineers and you say, who's the best among us for this job? Let's hold a vote. And you actually elect the project leader for this project because that's the person you think would be best. Or, you know, you elect your boss because that's the most knowledgeable and the person that you think would be able to reflect the needs of not just corporation, but the rest of the people in your group. Right. Like a captain of the ship that the crew can believe in and support. Yeah. And, you know, it would be the sort of thing where 
it's not like every single decision is made by voting. Once you get to that sort of level, you're kind of, you're getting into analysis paralysis and all this stuff. So it's a sort of thing where you have to, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be balance between somebody always getting their will and mob rule, you know, so kind of this dictator mob rule kind of dynamic. But by allowing people to say, okay, I think you should be in charge. And then once that person is in charge, you, like you could have a recall vote if enough people think, hey, this, what the fuck is this guy doing? Yeah. <laughs> or like if there's any one policy where it's just like everybody's like, um, I don't think so. We, I think we should tr- hold a vote to override that decision, you know. But on a day to day basis, the guy's not being an asshole. The guy's, you know, making reasonable decisions. There's no need for any of that stuff to even happen. It would just be normal workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it would be the sort of thing where maybe once every year or two, or every time there's a new project, someone would be chosen. And typically it would be, I mean, you're not going to just say, okay, let, let's pull some person off the street we've never met before. And let's make him in charge just based off of maybe an hour with him. When you're talking about something like this, where it's like, these are people you've known for years, typically just to even get into one of these cooperatives, you have to work there for a year or two so that they know that you're not going to steal. You're not going to be dishonest. You're not going to, you actually know how to do your job. And then you get, you're able to, you know, join the cooperative as a full member with voting rights. Right. Kind of like a contractor sort of a thing today, except most contractors, they get told they're going to be hired on and then they aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how many people out there have some know-nothing boss that just has this corporate personality and is the figurehead of the company just because they're so politically correct, they can navigate conversations without actually getting into the nitty gritty of what the company is actually doing. And, you know, people don't feel respected at their workplace. And that's one of the big reasons they loathe it so much. So to have some say in its structure would be, of course, ideal. I mean, who's going to argue against that except the uh, corporate cabals? You know, as I was talking about before with the brain research that that was done on authority, the less that your boss is accountable to you or to other people, the less they even consider your viewpoint or your views or what you have to say. Right. And so the more concentrated this power becomes – the more authority one yield, one wields, the less they, you know, the more power drunk they become, the less accountable they are to anyone. Yeah, it's goddamn Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. So this is a way to deal with that research finding is to say, okay, well, now you're accountable. If you're constantly beating up on this poor schlub who works for you for no good reason, they are going to notice, other people are going to notice. That's the thing is this stuff gets covered up by authority and it gets covered up by politics in the normal workplace. But in a workplace like this, people, you know, it's like, it's like the female bonobos being like, what the fuck are you doing, asshole? <laughs> you know, you're not going to come over here and rape, rape our girl. She doesn't want you around. Yeah. You know, so it's that kind of change in mindset. It doesn't mean that it has to devolve into an anarchist or, you know, this analysis paralysis, constantly voting sort of situation that a lot of people jump to immediately. I mean, 
to me, it, I think it's kind of sad. And it's a really an indictment of our society today that we, we are in the first established democracy in the modern world. And yet you talk about work democracy and everybody's like, oh, fuck, look at this communist guy. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing here? You lefty, get the fuck out of here. Think of right. It. We can't even conceive of having a little power in the workplace. We're so brainwashed for top down dominance. Yeah. And that's the thing is that nothing like this ever actually happened in the Soviet Union. You know, they right. for all their talk about, you know, workers freedom and worker control. It just turned into this into the party control, this authoritarian, heavy handed and controlling plan that was imposed on everyone. And you did. I mean, like I said before, you, you, there wasn't really any difference between the factory worker in Soviet Russia or in Nazi Germany. There wasn't really any difference whether you were a Jew in a concentration camp or whether you were a Russian engineer who got sent to the gulag. Right. It doesn't really matter at that point. They get us trapped in this left versus right thing and looking at these examples in history and be like, well, look at all the death communism has caused. Capitalism has caused a lot of death, too. But regardless of the debate, it's like we're stuck in a paradigm where we're still looking at the people being pushed around by top down authoritarians. And so neither of those is the example we want to look at. We can't find one for what exactly we're trying to look at. Well, I mean, the thing is that a lot of the examples got basically killed off during the colonial expansion after the Renaissance. I mean, it was it was mainly the, the church who was doing this. The Catholic Church was basically going around, oh, wh- who do you believe in? Oh, you don't know about Jesus? Well, fuck you. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to chop your head off and you're going to chop your hands off. And, okay, next in line, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, fuck yeah, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean... And they, they burned all, you know, they, they burned their culture. They burned it to the ground. And there were a lot of indigenous people who ended up kind of hiding it within their expression of the church. They, they still had little vestiges of it here and there so they could, you know, kind of do things to their old ways on the slide. But still, a lot of it got lost. Oh, yeah, for sure. And this colonial domination wiped out a lot of our examples, to tell you the truth. Well, and it's just so funny that in modern times, whether you're on the left or the right, a lot of people look at either Obama or Trump as this father figure, this savior figure. It is pretty much like people look at these people like the second coming of Christ. And it's just this savior motif of like, oh, well, once we get the right guy in there for the top down control, then everything's going to be all right. And it's just the same revolving door of false hopes. And maybe we should look at changing the model entirely. Well, that's the thing is, you know, like I was saying with that brain research, the the more authority is concentrated, the less it's responsible to the the people who are granting that authority in reality, then the worse things are going to be no matter what. They just aren't going to give a shit because they don't have to give a shit. Right. You know? And what would be some of the primary safeguards against that? Like if you were to throw out a couple of things that that would be the non-negotiables for a society with a more advantageous structure. I mean, what are those things that the oily appendages of the elite aren't going to be able to navigate around? So I think there needs to be, you know, definitely a private industry and state control. 
both. If you have one or the other and, and there's no, no checks on private interests and the public interest is or, or the public interest is dominating everything, then, you know, you end up with the same sort of end result. But there needs to be a balance between them where I think the line would be what is essential for life, what's essential for the functioning of our planet and for an economy. And, and believe me, our, our economy is a subset of the ecology of our planet. Oh, yeah. You know, all of our industries are dependent on natural resources. You can't divest them from that. And that's a lot. That's a big problem with a lot of economic theory today is just thinking that you can grow infinitely on a finite planet. So first of all, I think there needs to be both private and public because the thing with public control is it, it it's always going to be, be just because of the fact that the state's going to be, it should be larger than any one economic entity to keep them in check. But because of that size, there's going to be, but you know, not so big that it, it stifles the rights of the citizen. But there's also going to be kind of an inherent slowness of response. And that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing because, you know, there can be a surplus for these essential services that's built up in a government or a public entity that can't really be done in a, in a private entity, not, not one that's not so big that it becomes a monopoly anyway. And there needs to be private expression because in the economy because it's more efficient in the long run it's it's more adaptive but the thing is you can't have any one group able to dominate the others so there needs to be a level playing field and i also think that you know just kind of due to human psychology a person can't keep track of more than about 100 to 120 contacts something like that so that was kind of like the optimized village size back back in pre-industrial civilization. And that was just kind of because everybody kind of knew everybody else. They were they they knew who they were dealing with. They were able to have long-lasting relationships and things like that. So, you know, when you get into these large these larger structures of private entities, then, you know, things start to be able to get a bit out of control. That also helps to guard against centralization, because an organization that gets too big is obviously going to get pushed towards centralized control just for the sake of tidiness and efficiency. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is basically that essential services, this this kind of safeguarding the role of the commons is basically where the state lands. And then things that aren't essential services, things that aren't like healthcare or fire prevention or, you know, making sure that there's enough natural resources for industry to exist even it can fall into this more of a kind of a free for all. But if you have, you know, this work democracy built into it, then it's the sort of thing where there will be more self-regulation and it won't even have to get up to the state regulation level because who's going to be a part of a company where you have a vote and you're able to work things out between yourself and your boss Who's going to vote for poisoning their environment when they live there? Right. If that's imposed on you, okay, I got to fuck, got to do it. Otherwise, I'm out of here, and I got the kids to, pay, you know, I got the kids to pay for their their school, and my dog's, you know, he's got a he's got a gimpy leg, and you know, my wife's, oh man, 
she's uh, not looking too hot today, so she's not working. I, I better just better just pump, pump the stuff down the drain, you know. So right, but if it's some board of executives on Wall Street who only give a shit about the dollars coming in and they don't care what goes on in these environments outside of the city, then you're of course going to have problems and nobody's going to be wanting to correct it if the money train is still coming in. And there's also, I mean, have you ever watched the documentary, The the Corporation? Yeah, it's very good. The psychoanalysis of a corporation, if it was an actual person and how it would be completely psychopathic. Exactly. Yes, yes. And And that's basically the way that we have it set up. The owners are the shareholders and the only thing that the leader, the kind of autonomous leader at the top is really responsible for is for those shareholders and their profits. So it's a completely self-interested kind of modality. That's really what characterizes psychopathy and sociopathy is always putting yourself in front of others, not in a protective sense, like I need to protect myself from others, but in an exploitive sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably a good lead into our next topic, which would be, you know, a little bit about libertarian psychology and philosophy. Sure. Let's talk about that because, you know, I have actually gotten into it with some of the libertarian guests I've had because while I do agree that I'd like less state control in a broad sense, if you remove it entirely, you have a world run by corporations who will no doubt exploit every worker that they can, every consumer base they can, and will just trash the planet until there is nothing left. I know our current regulatory agencies are completely compromised, but just to think that free markets and corporate cabals will police themselves is insane. Yes, I totally agree. Now, to get into this, I think we should start a little bit with some studies into the psychology of libertarians. Cool. Okay. It looks like there was a survey by yourmorals.org, which basically had everybody place themselves on a left-right scale. And it allowed people to choose libertarian as an option. Now, in a project led by Rabbi Ehler, Ravi Ehler, they analyzed the results from nearly 12,000 self-described libertarians and compared their responses of 21,000 conservatives and 97,000 liberals. The paper was published last week in PLOS One. Findings largely confirm what libertarians have been said about themselves. So here is what the results of what the study said. Libertarians match liberals in placing a relatively low value on the moral foundations of loyalty, authority, and sanctity. They're not so concerned about sexual issues and flag burning, but they join conservatives in scoring lower than liberals on care and fairness foundations, where fairness is mostly equality, not proportionality, i.e. they don't want a welfare state and heavy-handed measures to force equality. This is why libertarians can't be placed on the spectrum from left to right. They have a unique pattern that is, in no sense, just somewhere in the middle. They really do not, they really do put liberty above all other values. On reasoning and emotions, most libertarians are of a masculine style. Liberals are the most feminine. Measures of empathizing and systemizing, which refers to the drive to analyze the variables in a system and derive the underlying rules that govern behavior of the system, men tend to score higher on this variable 
and libertarians score the lowest of the three groups on empathizing and the highest on systemizing. So in this and other measures, libertarians come out as cerebral, rational, and the least emotional. And to me, that kind of sounds a little bit spectrum-y, you know what I'm saying? You know, <laughs> And actually, I think that people who have, because the thing is that somebody who's on the spectrum from autism to Asperger's, those are kind of lower grades of psychopathy. In a, in a way, but it's it, it manifests differently. They they aren't. It isn't that they are trying to exploit others or they're trying to take advantage of others. They just can't really relate to others. It's more of like a handicap rather than like this monstrous, violent, and damaging manifestation. But it also tends to make them higher functioning in terms of their rationalization and their ability to do things in a logical and ordered manner. Fair enough, man, but that is pretty harsh. I do understand what you're saying, though. It's kind of like, leave me alone. I'm going to do what I'm doing over here and just you do what you do over there. But if everybody does that, there's going to be conflicts in certain areas. It's like the classic issue with uh, Gary Johnson when he was actually booed off the stage at a libertarian rally because he was trying to argue that well, we can't just let blind people get driver's licenses. And it's like, well, who are you to say? What authority do you have to infringe on the rights of the blind to drive? I'm not I'm not saying that all libertarians are on the spectrum by any means. <laughs> no, but I get what you're saying. And that's an example of how it can go off the rails. Yeah, I, I think of it in my mind. I have a distinction between psychopathy and sociopathy. This comes from a book called Political Ponerology. It was actually written by a scientist. I can't remember if it was a psychiatrist or just a psychoanalyst or something like that, but he was basically one of those two, and he was living in Nazi Germany. No, he was living in Poland, and when Poland was invaded, he was pursued by the Nazis. And then he ended up writing this book about his experiences because I think he was captured and imprisoned. But basically what he says is that psychopaths are people who are the way they are, typically because of a trauma that they've endured. And it actually impacts them at such a fundamental level that it completely twists their psychology at a biological level. Well, just look at how the elite apparently raised their own kids. Something you sent me talked about how Trump was raised and how he raised his own kids. And it was an exact match for what the Rothschild family does, where the father is constantly trying to trick his own children, gives them basically no love and says, look, the world is a cold, hard place and nothing is fair and everybody's trying to fuck you. And so you better fuck them first. And I mean, that's traumatizing to a child. So it's no surprise these people grow up to be psychopaths. Yeah, and there, there actually there, there is you know there there is a genetic component to this. It seems that there are certain bloodlines and groups of people who are more susceptible to this trauma activating their genes to express this because there are people who, who still carry that gene and they don't you know they're they're a bit emotionally stunted, but they aren't full blown psychopathic, you know. They, they might not always take people into consideration as much as others, but 
I think what it is is that trauma is a really kind of a catalyst to creating that this kind of epigenetic link where that genealogy is expressed. Makes sense. Like you can have a predisposition, but if it isn't triggered by trauma, it won't be quite so severe. It won't show as much in your personality. Yeah, it's kind of like like um, there's celiac disease where people end up being not being able to handle gluten protein. And this is where, you know, all this oh, gluten-free stuff comes from. But people will often go for years eating gluten as a child and it won't affect them. And then one day they have a bowl of Cheerios and their stomach feels like it's like it's on fire and they start seeing lights and getting a migraine and, and they're in bed for three days. <laughs> so, you know, it's it can be that quick if there's the right stimulus. So getting back to it, sociopathy, I think of as more of somebody who is in the psychopathic mindset. And and the, the, the distinction that they that they give in psychology between these is that somebody who, who is sociopathic, they're able to regulate their response around others to a larger degree to the psychopathic person who Basically, they don't have that impulse control. Now, I would say that somebody who is psychopathic is somebody where this gene expression has been turned on and the way their brain processes information has changed and their mirror neurons are not firing at the same rate everybody else's is. And they can't control that on any sort of conscious level anymore. Sociopaths, I think, are more people who are kind of inculcated or, you know, they, they end up getting acclimated to a culture that's sociopathic or psychopathic. And a lot of times what will end up happening is some toxic or psychopathic person gets into an organization and they build up their own little cult around them where they end up recruiting people who are prone to developing this more sociopathic behavior. And you see that a lot in cults of personality giving rise to fascist or communist bureaucracies and organizations. So speaking of cults of personality, I think it would be a good time to get into Rand and <laughs> her influence on libertarianism. Sure. A lot of people worship her and the links you sent me were pretty interesting about her background and why she might think the way she did. Yeah. So one thing you got to realize is that Rand, she actually grew up in Tsarist Russia. And when the revolution happened, basically, she went from being a little her daddy's little princess to and her dad. He was very, you know, he was he was kind of some of the elite in that country. He, he owned a pharmacy, made very good money, you know, had an upper middle class sort of sort of lifestyle. And then all that was ripped away when the revolution happened. And basically, they took his pharmacy, and he vowed that he'd never work for them. And I, I think I've got a quote here. So her name was Alyssa at the time. She was, she was Alyssa Rosenbaum. What she said was she saw the look on her father's face as, you know, he was basically being torn from his pharmacy shop. And she said that I felt the way he looked. His was one of helplessness murderous frustration and indignation. He could do absolutely nothing. This event and the subsequent starvation that he and his family suffered begging on the streets of St. Petersburg 
left a very great trauma in Anne Rand's mind as she was growing up. She ended up asking one of her relatives to help her move to the United States, and they altruistically gave her some money to do so in 1925. After she arrived, she changed her name to Anne Rand and started to kind of pick up where most people who are libertarian would probably know a bit more about her past. But there is one aspect that probably they don't know about, and that would be her admiration of the serial killer, William Hickman. That is an interesting aspect for sure. What can you tell us about that? When Anne Rand was coming up with her idea of an ideal man, which she leveraged a lot in a lot of her, you could call it literature, I use that term a bit loosely because it's it's very one-dimensional. <laughs> um, I'd say it's, you know, it's kind of a juvenile literature in, in the way it's written. And I, I mean, I'm just kind of being objective here. I'm not really trying to badmouth people who like it, but I'm saying what I what I think. But she had this ideal man, this kind of Superman image that she wanted to build up in each of her books. And a lot of that came from her father and his ideals and his personality. But there was another figure which factored into this a great deal. And it was actually this serial killer, William Hickman. And, you know, most people, well, what are you talking about? How could that possibly be? So I'm going to read a little bit here, if that's okay, from a story called How Ayn Rand Became a Big Admirer of Serial Killer William Hickman by Mark Ames of Alternet. All right. So the best way to get to the bottom of Ayn Rand's beliefs is to look at how she developed the superhero of her novel, Atlas Shrugged, John Galt. Back in the late 1920s, as Ayn Rand was working out her philosophy, she became enthralled by real-life American serial killer William Edward Hickman, whose gruesome, sadistic dismemberment of a 12-year-old girl named Marion Parker in 1927 shocked the nation. Rand filled her early notebooks with worshipful praise of Hickman. According to biographer Jennifer Burns, author of Goddess of the Market, Rand was so smitten with Hickman that she modeled her first liter literary creation, Danny Renahan, the protagonist of her unfinished novel, The Little Street, on him. So this is what she had to say about Hickman. Rand said, other people do not exist for him, and he does not see why they should. She gushed that Hickman had no regard whatsoever for all that society holds sacred, and with a consciousness of all his own, he has the true innate psychology of a superman. He can never realize and feel other people. They go on to say this echoes almost word for word Rand's later description of her character Howard Rourke, the hero of the Fountainhead. He was born without the ability to consider others. The Fountainhead is a Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's favorite book, even requires his clerks to read it. So, and, and that's actually a common theme with a lot of the fans of Rand is that they require other people to read his books. And I knew somebody before who tried to get me to read one of her books, and I, I could only really get through about the first 40 pages. And that's because what our bet was, was whether I could, I would stop at that point and I could barely get through it just because it was so rough to read. Just the callousness, 
and kind of the you know the one-dimensional characters the kind of fey woman swooning and and this very dominant male character and most people didn't really have much of a backstory they just kind of were there saying things at you and the words that were in their mouths were Anne Rand's words so getting back to what she thought of William Hickman she said he was a genuinely beautiful soul so I think at this point it would be a good idea to talk about what Hickman actually did. Sure. You know, to kind of give an idea of who this person was that she admired so much and what, you know, maybe she admired about him. Rand fell for William Edward Hickman in the 1920s as the shocking story of Hickman's crime started to grip the nation. He was the O.J. Simpson of his day. His crime trial and case were nonstop headline grabbers for months. Hickman, who was only 19 when he was arrested for murder, was the son of a paranoid schizophrenic mother and grandmother. His schoolmate said that as a kid, Hickman liked to strangle cats and snap the necks of chickens for fun. Most of the kids thought he was a budding maniac, although adults gave him good marks for behavior, a typical sign of a sociopathic cunning. He enrolled in college but quickly dropped out and then turned to violent crime largely driven by the thrill and arrogance typical of sociopaths. In a brief and wild crime spree that grew increasingly violent, Hickman knocked over dozens of gas stations and drugstores across the Midwest and, went, and west to California. Along the way, it's believed he strangled a girl in Milwaukee and killed his crime partner's grandfather in Pasadena, tossing his body over a bridge after taking his money. Hickman's partner later told police that Hickman told him how much he'd like to kill and dismember a victim someday, and that day did come for Hickman. One afternoon, Hickman drove up to Mount Vernon Junior High in Los Angeles, telling administrators he'd come to pick up the Parker girl. Her father, Perry Parker, was a prominent banker. Hickman didn't know the first the girl's first name, so when he was asked which of the two Parker twins, he answered, the younger daughter. Then he corrected himself, the smaller one. No one suspected his motives. The school administrator fetched young Marion and brought her out to Hickman. Marion obediently followed Hickman to his car, as she was told, where he promptly kidnapped her. He wrote a ransom note to Marion's father, demanding $1,500 for a return, promising the girl would be left unharmed. Marion was terrified into passivity. She even waited in his car for Hickman when he went to mail his letter to her father. Hickman's extreme narcissism comes through in his ransom letters, as he refers to himself as the mastermind and not a common crook. Hickman signed his letter, The Fox, because he admired his own cunning. Fox is my name, very sly, you know. And then he threatened, get this straight, your daughter's life hangs by a thread. Hickman and the girl's father exchanged letters over the next few days as they arranged the terms of the ransom, while Marion obediently followed her captor's demands. She never tried to escape the hotel where he kept her. Hickman even took her to a movie. She never screams for help. She remains quiet and still, as told when Hickman tied her to a chair. He didn't even bother gagging her because there was no real need to right up to the end. Hickman's last ransom note to Marion's father is where the story reaches its disturbing end. Hickman fills the letter with hurt anger over her father's suggestion that Hickman might deceive him and ask you for $1,500 for a lifeless mass of flesh. I am base and low, but I won't stoop to that depth, is what Hickman said as he wrote the letter. Marion had already been chopped up into several lifeless masses of flesh. Why taunt the father? Why Vain outrage, this sort of bizarre taunting was all part of the serial killer's thrill, maximizing his sadistic pleasure. 
But this was nothing compared to the thrill Hickman got from murdering the helpless 12-year-old Marion Parker. Here is an old newspaper description of the murder taken from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It was while I was fixing the blindfold that the urge to murder came over me. I couldn't help myself. I got a towel and stepped up behind Marion. Then before she could move, I put it around her neck and twisted it tightly. I held on and she made no outcry except to gurgle. I held on for about two minutes, I guess, and I let go. When I cut loose the fastening, she fell to the floor. I knew she was dead. Well, after she was dead, I carried her body into the bathroom and undressed her, all but the underwear, and cut a hole in her throat with a pocket knife to let the blood out. He then took a pocket knife and cut a hole in her throat, cut off each arm to the elbow, he cut her legs off at the knees. He put the limbs in a cabinet. He cut up the body in his room at the Bellevue Arms Apartments. Then he removed the clothing and cut the body through at the waist. He put it on a shelf in the dressing room. He placed a towel in the body to drain the blood. He wrapped up the exposed end of the arm and waist with paper. He combed back her hair, powdered her face, and then with a needle fixed her eyelids. He did this because he realized he would lose the reward if he did not have the body to produce to her father. So this is this is what he was doing as he wrote that note. Dark stuff. Hickman packed her body, limbs, and entrails into a car and drove to the drop-off point to pick up his ransom. Along the way, he tossed out, wrapped up limbs, and entered, scattering them around Los Angeles. When he arrived at the meeting point, Hickman pulled Marion's head and torso out of a suitcase and propped her up. Her torso was wrapped tightly to look like she was alive. He sewed wires into her eyelids to keep them open so that she'd appear to be awake and alive. When Miriam's father arrived, Hickman pointed a sawed-off shotgun at him, showed him Miriam's head and eyes sewn open. It, went to, it would have been hard to see for certain that she was dead from his position, and then took the ransom money and sped away. As he sped away, he threw Miriam's head and torso out of the car, and that's what the father ran up to when he saw his daughter and screamed. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's about as dark as it gets. And, you know, for Rand to think of this person as someone to be admired, obviously it shows that, you know, she's taken this ideal in her mind of, you know, this rational self-interest and has taken it to a, a pathological extreme. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can go on a bit more, but I think when her father was demasculated, in front of her and lost everything at the hands of what she perceived as, you know, society or the forces of the mob or, you know, community or other people. She kind of related to her father's indignation and individualism to such a degree that it became this pathological expression of that. That would be that trauma. Well, what, what do Rand fans say about this association or this Hickman appreciation? I've never got anyone to actually talk about it. I've mentioned it before, and they just kind of roll their eyes and think that it's just fake news sort of a thing. You know, they don't, they don't want to even acknowledge it. Hmm. I did read a little bit about it because I was curious, and basically the only thing I could find was someone who's like, these are all things taken out of context, but it is a fact that she only talked about Hickman in her private journals, which indicates she had a an appreciation for him, but didn't necessarily want it to be out there in the open. 
Yeah. At least that's how I took that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, all of her relationships were very skewed. If you've ever done any research into the collective, which is really for the Ayn Rand fan club slash think tank, that's a pretty weird name, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, she was so against collectivism in any form. And yet she named her group the collective. So I, I, I'm just, I don't have any understanding how that even came about, (laughs) but (laughs) it's interesting. Right. So basically, we're just pointing out here, I guess, that libertarianism seems to have some shaky foundations, some shaky founders. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. When you look into its history in terms of how it actually came about, there's there is definitely corporate special interests who are involved in promoting it. So, I mean, Rand just kind of followed on this promotion and i mean she she soaked it up she loved it but you know it, it was they, they were very complimentary to each other in the way that that was expressed so one of these corporate groups that was involved in promoting libertarianism was the foundation for economic freedom and it was founded by u.s chamber of commerce executive leonard reed and his top contributors included General Motors, Chrysler, Consolidated Edison, DuPont, Gulf Oil, U.S. Steel. Notice a pattern here with the American Liberty League, Montgomery Ward, Armour, and B.F. Goodrich. So a lot of the same groups that were involved in founding the American Liberty League were actually involved and found the Foundation for Economic Freedom. Why wouldn't corporate think tanks support an ideology that gets rid of all regulation and gives them free reign? I mean, it just makes too much sense. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the FEE and libertarianism in general was to supplement big business lobbying with pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-economic rationale to back up its policy and legislative attacks on government regulations. So that's kind of the, the start of it. But it really, really takes off as things are, are suffering for them in terms of the Nixon Watergate situation. So basically, by that point, there's no faith in politics. There's no faith in a lot of these more libertarian ideals. And the response was basically that one of the aides for Richard Nixon outlined a plan to put what he called the GOP on TV. And the idea was to basically create a news network that would, and initially basically what it was, uh, this wasn't when it was Fox News, but when it was another name. Uh, Let me see here. I, I can find it real quick. So when Ailes founded Television News Incorporated, which he called Fair and Balanced in the 1970s, basically it was this company that would make propaganda and then they would sell it at cut rate prices, almost fire sale prices to different networks. And so it was basically a way to generate content that would be picked up all over the place and would cost them, you know, a lot less than producing it themselves. But it was just to kind of get the word out there kind of a thing. 
And eventually that did grow into Fox News, but it was, in the words of a news director who quit in protest, a propaganda machine. That's, that's what it was, pure and simple. It was just a propaganda machine to put out this libertarian message. So that has basically, you know, resulted in a large number of people being brainwashed to a degree into this sort of thinking that if we get rid of all government authority, and it's always government, it's never corporate. They don't ever look at the corporate side of power. They say, you know, if we just get rid of government, I won't be taxed as much as I am. I'll be able to, you know, I mean, or a very tiny government that barely does anything really, other than, I guess, make sure that the, the streets are paved and businesses don't catch fire so that business can keep going on. But this idea basically comes out of this backlash that happened after the Nixon Watergate scandal and the overall wave of progressive and socialistic legislation that had gotten passed after the New Deal and during the 60s and 70s. So it was basically designed to help dismantle that. And today we've we've seen the result is that most of that legislation, which was built up over about 40 or 50 years, has completely gone. There's, there's nothing left of it for the most part, just vestiges, if anything. Now, should we go ahead and start talking about the Russian Revolution in more deep? I could talk briefly about fascism and socialism, or do you want me to just go to... Yeah. Well, I think it'd be important just so we can say that we were... Uh, even-handed in the discussion about fascism and its many rappers. And then from there, yeah, we can go into Beastmen and Gods and that whole chapter. Okay. So one thing about all this, and I, and I, you know, I can kind of hear the, the arguments going in my head is, you know, well, fascism, Nazis weren't really fascist, they were socialist. And one of the problems with this is that in name, they had the name National Socialist Party. But the thing is that when you actually look at what they did in terms of their actual policies, like there were there were a few places where they where, you know, the industry had completely fallen apart and they did nationalize it for preparation for this war effort. But aside from that, there wasn't really any takeover of industry or anything like that or any regulation of normally functioning industry. So it was basically a way to provide an authoritarian hierarchy that would express corporate and industrial interests, especially after the, during and after the war, the buildup, all this stuff. You, you can see that there was this link with industrialists in other countries like America and, you know, this, this attempted coup in the United States and all these links with industrialists in Britain as well. So that's something that I think needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty much it. I think we've gone through everything. Right on. Yeah, I mean, that is just a, a real whirlwind of information, a fascism 101 that I think is pretty appropriate. I know I learned some things for sure. Hopefully people agree. And it is kind of tough to navigate these waters sometimes because it does get political and there is so much emotion 
around a person's ideology and politics that they're very guarded to hear it criticized, or they'll pay attention to making sure there was a 50-50 split between criticisms of both sides, because people just think everything is an op and that ideas aren't implemented necessarily the way they're talked about. Everybody gets very skeptical of that notion as well. So it's a bit of a ideological minefield to navigate, but I do think we talked about both sides and at its core, we're talking about corporate collusion, rule by authority, and these are ideas that anyone should be able to say, yeah, I don't support that. So, you know, maybe cut through some of the manipulation and propaganda and just see at the core, we're talking about trying to free people, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it's really about. And the last thing I would have to say is take a few minutes and go listen to that audio snippet I sent you. And I'll think for you that it, you know, it kind of ties everything together at the end. Right on. Well, man, this has been a bit of a marathon session. Again, I do think it's important stuff. I guess I would also ask you before we go, I mean, is there anything else to say about the return to the Elemental Alchemy series? Anything to say in terms of the preview for the next element on the list? So I was planning on getting back to the Elemental series and going to the Fire episode next. and then. Later on, I would get to the mind episode, but we just went through so much psychology and so much, but we started to get into some brain structure and things like that. And I think that if we go to the mind episode next, I can really fill in the whole psychological framework and give people a bit more depth on some of these concepts that we're bringing up and the link between mind and spirituality and quantum biology and things like that and being able to get into kind of how a lot of this stuff really freaking works get into mm -hmm. a user manual for the mind yeah i'm into it i think that'd be great yeah i just think it'll complement this and then we can move on and blast through the rest of the elemental series sure man awesome well Again, always enjoy having you here. I will let you enjoy the rest of your day because this has been a long one. Yeah. But we will be doing it again. And until that time, take care out there. Take it easy. Sweet baby Jesus, dear people of the internet. The triumphant return of Shaman Janir. Taking a break from elements to talk about ideologies. And I'll tell you, I was a little hesitant at first. I thought it might be... I don't know, a bit sober for THC and probably even a bit polarizing and triggering. Although fascism should be something we all oppose on a conspiracy show if we could just recognize it appropriately, which is really what this was all about. So I'm really glad we did it. I think it has a unique place in the archive and it's a topic worth focusing on. It just does get a little dicey when you bring up certain ideologies because so many people have their minds made up or their definition of something might be way off from another person's definition and we're all playing straw man games. These are some of the most loaded and propagandized terms in human history, so of course people have strong reactions. But because they're so twisted up, I think that's why we should be open to just unpacking them and taking an objective look. 
But I do agree that the correct framing is that we have a false dichotomy of leftist ideologies that promote state power, right ideologies that promote corporate power, but nobody's really pushing for people power. Maybe we could look at third options if we were open-minded enough to get over ourselves. I mean, I still wrestle with a lot of these ideas, but I think if you're going to be fair, we were pretty even-handed and balanced, and it's really just food for thought. Although the info about corporations changing after the Civil War and the attempted coup on FDR, that's super interesting history. But just in the context of our current times, I like to think that a lot of higher side listeners are a bit above the political infighting, but we all see it. And I said this in the show, but everything is getting so extreme that no one is even talking cooperation. It's all about winning and this mindset of if the other side would just get the fuck out of the way of my team's ideas, we could fix everything. And it's like, yeah, fix everything for you, but the road to tyranny is paved with good intentions. And gridlock is the goal. So powerful fucks can get you so frustrated with it that you approve the bulldozing of the parts of the system that they don't like. And again, it's not going to do anything for you. I'm not trying to be preachy, and I am no political scientist, but I do think any and all systems have been corrupted by top-down control with rigged economics, violence, exploitation, and cronyism. All of them. So it's really disingenuous to look back at history or the current climate and see one of these clearly corrupt social examples and say to someone, oh, that's what you want? Look at all those people who suffered under that system. You want to bring that back? And it's like, no, of course not. It's like Shamanj said, you can't find examples of free, fair, and open civilizations. Those were wiped out. History does not want those examples to be highlightable or for them to exist today. It's a lot like vaccine studies. The CDC never did MMR studies on non-vaccinated versus vaccinated groups. Only kids vaccinated to the schedule and ones where the schedule was extended. And even that was very telling. But the point is, the planet's puppet masters do not want us to have clear answers because we can unite around clear answers, in theory. And that's just what a lot of this is. It's just theory talk because it's not like a complete overhaul of our societal structure is even on the table for us. But maybe if we could point our pitchforks at both the authoritarian government and the rigged corporate cabal instead of each other, we might start to move the needle our way for a change. Maybe. And there isn't just one answer for this. I don't really think Shamanj was trying to shove one answer down anybody's throat. Although we did torch some sacred cows. And I don't really mind making that kind of trouble. It just doesn't seem like people are free to talk openly anymore. I'm reminded of something Dave Chappelle said in his latest special, which was to the effect of people who care about freedom have a responsibility to talk recklessly because I worry my kids will grow up in a world where they don't even know what reckless talk sounds like. And not that the show is reckless. In fact, Shaman Engineer puts a lot of work into getting ready for a THC and I really appreciate that effort. But the point is, let's throw around some ideas. Let's put them on the table. Let's look at material the state deemed unfit for us. Let's examine why these various structures haven't worked and what it would take to make one work. Let's toss around ideas without being completely married to them and take a conversation to places that not many are really going today. And I'm on board with that. And these episodes with Shaman Engineer are a bit different. It's not like he writes a book and then I read it and then we go over the finer points. 
It's more like he's a really smart, thoughtful, passionate guy who synthesizes a ton of information from a ton of sources on a particular topic and creates a form of presentation for us where I occasionally chime in just to remind you I'm still here. But he recorded with me for three plus hours, which with breaks and side conversations, it was about four plus all the preparation. So you got to respect a guy who's got nothing to sell you and still puts in all that time and thoughtfulness to making a good case for something that he cares about. And even still, he did have some addendums that got missed he wanted me to add. He did send me an article about the origins of engineering as a profession and how the way that it's taught is actually infused with authoritarian concepts. It's too long to read, but it's just a great example of how we are brainwashed for top-down control almost everywhere, and we don't realize it. I think that point about the nuclear family setting us up for the mindset of just following orders from some father figure, some goddamn tyrant, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know how else I'd want to raise my kids, but it's worth keeping in mind what type of imprinting you're doing with an operation like that. But yes, he did want me to add a few things, so let's do that. Firstly, we had planned to get to Europe's immigration crisis and tie that into the big picture. And I'm just going to quote him. He said, I would argue what's going on in Europe with immigration is a kind of shock doctrine or disaster reaction solution approach to overcoming the social programs afforded to citizens in those countries. The impetus to undermine these programs is to make them collapse under the added strain, which they were not designed to bear, resulting in internal conflict and strife. Additionally, fear of loss of identity is being used to shift demographics that are leading to the rise of nationalistic fronts in these countries. The entire response has been focused on the effects of the refugees and limiting damage to the European identity and economy, rather than asking what caused the crisis to begin with and how to prevent these people from fleeing their homelands. Believe me, nobody wants to be a refugee. Why has the response not been to organize relief efforts and peaceful solutions to the conflicts that have given rise to the refugee crisis in order to stem the tide before a flood? Isn't this the more logical and ethical response to a humanitarian disaster of such proportions? By allowing these disasters to continue unabated and focusing on the effects, I believe the conditions are being created for fascist policies to become central to the political development of Europe. And that's a sentiment many guests have really shared with me on and off air, that the globalists feel that Europeans have too many benefits, so you break the system with immigrants. Paint them as freeloaders, tell the citizens how much better off they'd be if they just paid for their own benefits, and then collapse the sense of communal safety net just to road the hell out of that. I think that makes sense. These greedy fucks are always trying to make us get by with less. And the only things we get out of our system are the ones we really, really fight for and draw the line in the sand around. Look at the countries who get the most out of their system on the planet, and it is probably Europe. So when the globalists are thinking about who they can chip away at, that's probably where they're looking. You know, we hit libertarians pretty hard and... They always stick to this taxation is theft principle, and I think taxation is really more of a social contract, but it's a complete shame that we have no control over the allocation of funds. If tax season came around and we all contributed 15% or so 
divided into categories of our choosing, I think we'd be a lot more okay with it. Because none of us are self-made, and the structure of our society probably should get a small percentage of our income just for setting up the conditions in which we can make a living. You need this structure to even do what you do. Otherwise, it's just fucking chaos. We're not crouching behind flaming trash cans in the streets, avoiding machine gun clad militias. So is it that bad to contribute to the ongoing avoidance of a full scale war zone and chip into the structure that we all appreciate being here, at least to a degree? But on top of those comments about the immigration crisis, he wanted me to say a bit more about beasts, men, and gods. Now, if you only heard the free show, you have no idea what that is. But just like the last show with Shimonjanir, the plus portion centers largely around one book with some very strange THC-type material in it. In the water episode, that book was Edadorfa. In this episode, it's Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Osendowski which is a largely personal memoir about a Russian doctor's experience running from the Bolshevik Revolution in the 1920s, a journey that not only showed him firsthand examples of the death and destruction associated with the revolution, but also brought him in contact with many interesting characters throughout China, Mongolia, and Tibet. Ding, ding, ding. And much like the exploration of Edadorfa, this book is just another example of some of the odd yet consistent details revolving around things below the surface. It contains stories of strange light sources inside the earth, an ancient civilization deep underground, and that this civilization has advanced flying crafts unknown to man at that time. So we spent the second hour, or should I just say the plus portion because it's really closer to the third hour, but we spent it reading from and branching off of these themes and this particular book. But he wanted me to emphasize that there's a lot more to the story of the Bloody Baron and that it's really worth reading yourself. You can also find audiobooks of it on YouTube. But he also mentioned that some historians claim that the reason the book ends without really recounting much of how Osendowski escaped Mongolia is because he might have stole a great deal of the treasure of the Mongolian horde as he fled, and that he buried it along his route with plans to return one day and recover it. And who doesn't love the idea of buried treasure? On top of the inner earth stuff. But on that subject, because he goes to Mongolia and Tibet, he is told a few stories from the people he interacts with about the inner earth civilization of Agartha and the passageway in Tibet, and in the show, we didn't get to the real gem, which is the prophecy of the king of the world, a.k.a. the king of Agartha. So it reads, The Hatuku of Narabanchi related the following to me when I, Osendowski, visited him in his monastery in the beginning of 1921. The king of the world appeared before the Lamas in this monastery 30 years ago, which would be 1890. He made a prophecy for the coming half century it was as follows. More and more, the people will forget their souls and care about their bodies. The greatest sin and corruption will reign on the earth. People will become as ferocious animals thirsting for the blood and death of their brothers. The crescent will grow dim and its followers will descend into beggary and ceaseless war. Its conquerors will be stricken by the sun, but will not progress upward. And twice they will be visited with the heaviest misfortune which will end in insult before the eye of the other peoples. The crowns of kings, great and small, will fall. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
There will be a terrible battle among all the peoples. The sea will become red. The earth and the bottom of the sea will be strewn with bones. Kingdoms will be scattered. Whole peoples will die. Hunger, disease, crimes unknown to the law, never before seen in the world. The forgotten and pursued shall rise and hold the attention of the whole world. There will be fogs and storms. Bare mountains shall suddenly be covered with forests. Earthquakes will come. Millions will change the fetters of slavery and humiliation for hunger, disease, and death. The ancient roads will be covered with crowds wandering from one place to another. The greatest and most beautiful cities shall perish in fire. One, two, three. Father shall rise against son, brother against brother, and mother against daughter. Vice, crime, and the destruction of body and soul shall follow. Families shall be scattered. Truth and love shall disappear. From ten thousand men, one shall remain. He shall be nude and mad and without force, and the knowledge to build him a house and find his food. He will howl as a raging wolf, devour dead bodies, bite his own flesh, and challenge God to fight. All the earth will be emptied, God will turn away from it, and over it there will be only night and death. There I shall send a people, now unknown, which shall tear out the weeds of madness and vice with a strong hand, and will lead those who still remain faithful to the spirit of man in the fight against evil. They will found a new life on earth, purified by the death of nations. In the fifteenth year, which would be 1940, only three great kingdoms will appear, which will exist happily for 71 years until 2011. Afterwards, there will be 18 years of war and destruction until 2019. Then the people of Agartha will come up from their subterranean caverns to the surface of the earth. So as Shimonjanir said to me, one to two years out, Agarthans may be walking among us. But nothing much else in the prophecy seems to have been too accurate, so I wouldn't hold your breath. But it is a quite interesting bit of hollow earth lore. And maybe we should just avoid the descent into complete divisiveness just in case. <laughs> so check out the Plus Show to hear that hour, largely about the book, theiresidechatsplus.com. Sign up on Patreon. You know how to do it. Shaman Engineer also wanted me to end the show with Tom Clay's What the World Needs Now. Unfortunately, I can't because of commercial rights. But I think I got just the thing. And I'll catch you later. Your move, international fascists, commies, Nazi survivals, and breakaway civilizations. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MKUltra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan It's what the world's become Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see The masters lie too much Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think The system's out of touch 
you know the elite aren't your friends They'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself Maybe they aren't registering at all Now they know you're naive and vulnerable You won't believe all of the stunts that they'll pull Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only 